0: Father, we thank you for um, how you've reminded us of the great sacrifice that you have made. Father, how you sent your Son, Lord Jesus, how you, God the Son, came to this earth, put on flesh, you became a man, so that in the place of sinful men like us, you could live a righteous life, and die an atoning death, and rise a glorious resurrection for your people, for all who would turn from their sins, and put their faith and trust in you alone and then you ascended back into heaven to the right hand of your Father and together with the Father you poured out your Spirit upon us, Lord, to to fill us, um, to bring us new life, to uh, enable us to live for you. And Lord, we understand that uh, the life of individuals has Uh, Unlimited value because we are created in your image, but we also understand that we have marred that by our sin, Lord. We have blasphemed you in the highest degree possible um, by uh, misrepresenting you to this world, Lord. And that is why we needed a Savior, because uh, we were under your wrath, Lord. We needed to be rescued from your wrath. We needed to be rescued from slavery to our sin, our own wickedness, Lord. And the fact that, Lord Jesus, you came and you offered up your life, Lord, that that places value back on us, not so much because of our value, but because of your value, Lord, that you ultimately did what you did to glorify your name, to put your justice, your grace, your mercy on display. And so, Lord, when you redeemed us, you made us trophies of your grace, Lord, that uh, we exist to bring you glory, that that is what you do all things for, is your glory. And we praise you, Lord, that you have chosen us who have turned from our sins and put our trust in Christ. You have chosen to lavish your grace upon us, Lord, to uh, privilege us um, to be able to be reconciled to you and to communicate you to a lost world. And Lord, we're here this morning because we want to know you more. May that be why we're here. We want to worship you. We want to be equipped so that we can go into this world and represent you better so that even more um, can come and be made trophies of your grace and bring you glory and be true worshipers of you. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your word this morning that you would do that, you would equip us, that you would change us, you would make us more and more like your Son, our Lord Jesus, so that you may gain even more glory in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to Psalm 5, which we read for our call to worship, so I won't read it again, but we'll, we'll, we will read it again as we work through it. Psalm 5, it's a psalm of David. And like so many of the psalms, this psalm is a prayer. And as I've mentioned in a previous message, most of us would acknowledge that our prayer lives are not what they ought to be. We often read about the saints of old and we see how they would labor in prayer, they'd be zealous in prayer, and if we were alive 2,000 years ago and we physically walked on this earth with the Lord Jesus during his earthly life, we would have seen his persistent devotion to prayer. We would have seen his passionate zeal in prayer, his burdened heart in prayer, his encouragement and his great joy in prayer. And having seen that, like we read in Luke 11, we would have joined in with the disciples and begged him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And if we want to improve our prayer lives and commune with our God in a more deeper and fruitful way in prayer, like our Lord did, Our Lord uh, has provided us the teaching necessary, that teaching that we need to pay attention to in order to grow in our prayer life. And Psalm 5 is one of those means that the Lord has blessed us with to teach us how to pray. This psalm gives us invaluable lessons on how to cultivate this life of prayer. And in this psalm, we're going to see three foundational qualities that need to characterize our prayer life if we would pray like the Lord Jesus prayed, if we would pray like the psalmists prayed. And in this psalm, the first quality that we find, we find in the first two verses. Let me read those first two verses for us. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. My King and my God, For to you I pray. In these first two verses, we find that first quality of prayer that ought to characterize our own prayers. And it's this. We must humbly confide in God. God must be our confidant. He must be the one we humbly come to, like David does in this psalm. And in this psalm, it's another occasion where David is obviously suffering distress. That is the occasion upon which he prayed the words of this psalm he's being distressed by wicked enemies and the one he turns to the one he confides in is god and there's three things that i want you to notice in these first two verses three things about this god that david confides in and the first thing is who is this god how does he address this god look again at verses 1 and 2 he says give ear to my words o lord Uh, That was verse 1. In verse 2 he says, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. So in verse 1, David calls this God, calls him Lord. And in your Bibles you'll see it's Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. And as I've mentioned before, that's the translator's signal to you that the word there in the Hebrew is not actually Lord, it's actually the name of God, Yahweh. That name that he revealed to his people as the great I Am, Yahweh. So David, by calling his God by his name, he shows that he is in a covenant relationship with his God. He knows his God intimately, calling him by name. And it's Yahweh in whom David confides. He is the one that David turns to in his time of need. And then we see in verse 2 how David calls him his king. He says, my king. And it's significant when you understand that David himself is a king, right? But he does not let that title go to his head. David knows who's in charge for real. David understands that he is but a slave to the ultimate king, Yahweh. So he addresses his God as his king. And then he goes on, he calls him my God. David understands that this one that he has turned to is the sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. David understands that this one he's confiding in, he understands that he is David's only hope. Only God can carry him through this distressful situation that he's facing. That's why he's turning to him. That's why he's confiding in him. So that is the one that David is turning to. Second, what does he ask of this one he's confiding in? What does he ask of God? Verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Verse 2, Heed the sound of my cry for help. Each one of those phrases is a plea from David to God. He's begging God to hear him. And again, that is significant for a king. You don't picture kings begging. You don't picture kings either on their knees before someone pleading with them. And that is because David understands who God is. David understands that he is at the mercy of God. God is not at David's beck and call, jumping to attention every time David calls on him. David understands that God is not his genie. He's not existing solely for David. No, David humbly addresses God as a person who does whatever he pleases. And so David must come before him humbly and plead with him, beg him to have mercy and to hear him. David knows his place. And then thirdly, how does David pray to his God? How does he pray? Again, verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words. He says, consider my groaning or sighing or meditation. Verse 2, he says, heed the sound of my cry for help. My cry for help. See how he describes his prayers. He describes his prayers as sometimes words, sometimes sighings or groanings, and other times as cries for help. David's prayers take on a different form or a different mode at different times. And it shows us that what makes prayer truly prayer is not simply the mouthing of the words. It is the presenting of your heart before God as you look to him. There was an old southern Presbyterian preacher named W.S. Plummer. He lived in the 1800s and he was himself a man of passionate prayer. And he wrote a commentary on on the Psalms, and in commenting on these first two verses, he says this. Quote, True prayer is never careless or listless. It is earnest. It is importunate. That means persistent. I had to look that up. He says, It thinks. It also cries. Verse 2. Delay of the answer for a season, but inflames its desires. And that is how David is praying. Sometimes his prayers are in words. Sometimes they're in indistinguishable groans and sighs. Sometimes they are loud, tearful cries for help. But whatever form his prayers are taking, he's calling on God to hear him, understand him, heed him, rescue him. Now is God the one that you humbly confide in? Is he the one that you share your deepest, darkest secrets and fears with? Is he the one you confess your sins to, that you're totally honest with? Is he the one you run to with everything, both good and bad? And when you come to him, do you come to him as someone you are in covenant with, Yahweh? Do you come to him as your king? Do you come to him as your God, Or do you treat him instead like he's your genie who needs to bend to your will and your desires? Do you recognize that he does not exist for you? You exist for him. You are at his mercy. You need him. And when you pray, when you're in your prayer closet, when you're privately praying to God, are your prayers earnest? Are they persistent? Are they passionate? Or is it more like you're reading from the phone book? And I'm not talking about putting on airs a fake passion like some act or performance before God. I'm talking about the passionate earnestness that naturally arises when you realize that this God is your only hope. And you are at his mercy. And if he does not intervene, nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to happen. And so you come to him as your only hope. Is that how you pray? So, if we would pray like Jesus, if we would pray like the psalmist, we must humbly confide in God. That brings us to verses 3 through 7, where we find that second quality that should characterize our prayers if we would have transformed prayer lives. And it's interesting coming off of verse 1 and 2 because there you see David on his knees begging. He's pleading. He's recognizing he's at the mercy of God. But then when you read verses 3 through 7, there is an incredible confidence that David prays with. Usually when you're begging someone, you're not sure what they're going to do. Are they going to answer me or are they going to reject me? But as David is begging, he then uh, changes into speaking confidently because he knows his God will hear his God will answer. His God will intervene. And that's the second quality that needs to characterize our prayers. We must pray with a wholehearted confidence in God. A wholehearted confidence. Look at verse 3. David says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you And eagerly watch, eagerly watch. He's expectant. He's testifying that when the morning dawns, his very first order of business will be to speak with God. Now there's nothing magical about the time of day in which you pray. But when you see that David is saying that the morning will find him on his knees before God, what does that tell you about the priority that that David places on prayer? It tells you prayer is at the very top of his list. The very top. And is prayer at the top of your list? Is it priority number one for you? Because it needs to be. And a big part of why David is so eager to get up early and to pray to God is because he's utterly confident that God will hear his voice. I think so often we're slothful Lazy in prayer because we don't have this confidence. We think we're just shooting off words into the atmosphere and it does nothing. But that is not how how David prayed. And it shows up by him placing priority on it. But we need to ask, why is David so confident? Is this just presumption? Is this uh, word of faith theology? Speak it into existence? No. There's three concrete reasons why David is so confident. And the first one we see in this third verse, we've already begun to touch on it, but notice the name of God he repeats. He says, In the morning, O Lord, O Yahweh. We could say that David is on a first name basis with his God. He knows his name. David is in covenant with this God, David has an intimate relationship with his God to the degree that he calls him by his name. And that's why he knows God will answer because he has a close, intimate relationship with this God. God cannot possibly not hear him because he's so close to him. And as we think about where we are at today on this side of the cross as Christians, we realize that Not only can we, like David, call on the name of God, but how can we address God? As our Father, Abba, Father, what intimacy can we address our God with? Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, where it tells us that we can, if we are believers in Christ, address God with these intimate terms. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's amazing that we as sinners, enemies of God, through what God's Son, Jesus Christ, has done, we have been adopted into the family of God through faith. We have been hidden in the Son of God himself, such, to such a degree, um, united to such a degree, that God now views us as sons. And he's poured his Spirit the Spirit of His Son into our hearts so that we sincerely, instinctively cry out to Him as our Father. So when you come to God in prayer, you should pray if you're a Christian with wholehearted confidence because you're not praying to a stranger. You're not praying to someone who is a harsh taskmaster. You're praying to your Father. And He will hear There's a second reason David is so confident. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. David prays confidently because he's confident in God's character. He's confident in God's character. When we get further down in the psalm, uh, into verse 10, we see that David is praying for what? He's praying for deliverance from wickedness. He's praying for God to judge evildoers. Now how can David pray that confidently? He can pray it confidently because he knows the character of God. He knows God's attitude toward wickedness. So he understands that what he's praying is totally in line with who God is and that God will not act in a way that is different from his character. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. David tells us who God is, who he knows God to be. Verse 4, he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. That's what David knows about God. It's like it says in 1 John 1:5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So David knows God will not entertain his wicked enemies. David also knows, verse 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. David knows what God does with the boastful. He lays them low. As 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, God is what to the proud? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So when David says, God oppose the proud, He knows God will do that because that's who God is and that's what God does. And he also knows that God hates all who do iniquity. Now that word for hate there, it doesn't mean having nasty, mean feelings towards someone. It means rejecting someone. David knows that God rejects all who do iniquity. He rejects them. He hates them. We see this same attitude toward those who are habitually wicked, those who have given themselves over to sin, those who are unrepentant. We see this same attitude of rejection, of hatred in the Lord Jesus himself. If you were to turn to Matthew 7, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, toward the end of that sermon, you'll recall um, Jesus is speaking there Of doers of iniquity and in chapter 7 verse 21 Jesus says this he says not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's that kind of hatred that is being spoken of in Psalm 5. It's a rejection of the unrepentant doer of iniquity. And just a side note here on verse 5. This is a, uh, to say the least, politically incorrect verse because we often throw around the canned phrase God hates the sin but he loves the sinner and there's truth to that but it leaves out a key piece of information critical for the sinner to know if he would understand his tenuous position before God and his need to be saved yes God loves him God is merciful God will open his arms to him if he comes to him but he needs to understand that until then God's hatred God's rejection rests upon him. If all we say to the sinner is, yeah, God hates your sin, but he loves you. What is the unbeliever gonna think? Well, God doesn't like what I'm doing, but it's okay. I'll keep doing it because I know at the end of the day he'll he'll accept me. He'll send me to heaven either way. He needs to understand God also rejects you. He hates you. You need to be reconciled to this God. You need to run to the cross. You need to hide yourself in God's Son who is the only one in whom you can find acceptance with God and friendship with God and experience the love of God. The Bible is so balanced and it's so easy for us in our speaking to become imbalanced. We need to seek to be as balanced as the scriptures are. Moving on to verse 6, what else does David know about God's character as God relates to wickedness? He says, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. You can't get much stronger in language than that. That is what David knows to be true about the character of God. And so when David prays for God to deal with, with these wicked individuals who are seeking to destroy him, he knows that God will deal with them because God always acts in accordance with his own righteousness and his own holiness. That is why David can pray confidently what he's praying. And that's so helpful for us to see because it's a tool that we can use to evaluate our own prayers. In our prayers, we need to constantly ask ourselves, Is what I'm praying right now, is it consistent with God's character? Because if it is, I can pray confidently and I can know that God will answer this prayer. He will say yes. But if I'm praying for something that is contrary to the character of God, I cannot pray that confidently. I can actually be confident he will say no to that prayer. So to pray confidently, we must... Be confident in God's character. But there's a third reason why David is so confident that God will hear his voice and accept him. And we find that in verse 7. And this, this quality that we need to cultivate is this. Uh, the, the, or this, this third aspect of, of being confident is that we need to be confident in God's countenance toward us. His countenance, that is... Uh, the state of his face. Is he frowning at us or is he smiling upon us? And David knew that God was smiling upon him. That's why he could pray confidently. In verses 4 through 6, he's described God's rejection of the wicked. But now in verse 7, in contrast to that, he describes God's acceptance of himself. And if you were thinking the way the rest of the world thinks, After you've seen David speak of God's rejection of the wicked, when you come to verse 7, what would you expect David to say? We would expect David to say, God, you will reject my enemies because of their wickedness, but you will accept me because I am not like them. I am a good man. I don't tear people down. I follow your law. I pray three times a day. I offer the sacrifices without fail. I attend public worship every chance I get and I tell others to follow you. Of course, you'll accept me. And we would expect David to say that if we were thinking the way the world thinks because that is our natural sinful tendency as human beings. We tend to seek to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to someone that we think is a worse sinner than us. But the fact is, that God does not judge us based on the standard of Hitler. He doesn't base us on the standard of Osama bin Laden. At least I'm not a terrorist. He doesn't base us even. He doesn't judge his base, He doesn't base his judgment upon us even by the standard of our angry boss or that uh, mean neighbor down the road. How does he judge us? On what basis does he judge us? It's on his own standard of righteousness. Himself. And so to say that God will reject my enemies but accept me because I'm not as bad as them, that's wrong-headed thinking. And we don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to read Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, which is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus told that parable to those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, it says. And it wasn't the Pharisee who was justified, who said, at least I'm not like that tax collector. It was the tax collector who was justified because he acknowledged his sinfulness to God and he begged for the mercy of God. And when we come to verse 7, we see that David has the attitude of that tax collector, not of that Pharisee. Because what does he say? What is the basis upon which he is confident that God will accept him, God will hear him? He says but as for me by your abundant loving kindness I will enter your house at your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you David understands that the only reason he can pray with confidence to God is because of God's loving kindness it's not because of his own merit David knows he's a sinner it's because of God's faithful love for David. It was by that faithful love of God that that God has forgiven David. It's by that same faithful love that God brought David into a covenant relationship with him. And it was by that same faithful love for David that God would keep David in that covenant relationship with him. And that is the only reason that you and I can pray to a holy God with any confidence at all. When we come to him, we are not to rely on our own righteousness because we don't have any of our own righteousness. When we come to him, we need to approach him with the understanding that God sent Jesus to meet that standard of righteousness for us, that Jesus has purchased our pardon, that Jesus has cleansed us of our sin, and he stands at the throne room of God representing us And so that when God looks at us as sinners, he sees not us as sinners, he sees us in his Son, who is our righteousness. That is the only reason we can come to him boldly to his throne of grace and pray confidently. So our prayers should be characterized by a humble confiding in God and by a wholehearted confidence in God And the last quality that we see from this psalm that should characterize our prayers is this. We must wholly conform to God. Wholly conform to God. That is, we must totally align our wills with God's will. If we would pray the way we ought to pray. 1 John 5, verse 14 through 15 says... This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. We can only pray confidently when we know we are praying in conformity to the will of God. Now what does this look like? What does it look like to pray in conformity to the will of God, to pattern our prayers after the will of God? What does it look like when you're praying for yourself, you who are God's servant? Well, we see what it looks like in verse 8. David says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Now David, he was facing a particular situation. There were enemies of his surrounding him, seeking to destroy him. And when you have that kind of opposition coming against you, along with that comes extremely strong temptations to sin, to find your own way to deal with that problem. Proverbs 29, verse 25 uh, highlights that reality for us when it says, The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be set securely on high. The sin of the fear of man gives birth to a host of other sins. And so David, because of his foes, he prays, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. And that is how we need to pray for ourselves. Not primarily, oh God, get me out of this situation. It hurts. But Lord, keep me in your righteousness. Keep me on your path. Doesn't matter what trial you're facing, whether it's sickness or persecution or financial hardship. When we're facing that trial, we need to ask God to lead us in paths of righteousness, to keep us from grumbling, to strengthen our faith to help us to honor him and to testify faithfully of him even as we are going through this trial. That is what it looks like when you're praying about yourself for yourself. That's what it looks like to conform your will to God's will, to pray, "Lord, your will be done in my life." Next, what does it look like to pray in conformity to the will of God when we're praying regarding our enemies? And this one is often most difficult for us to understand. But it's very appropriate, especially in our day of, our day and age, especially in the month of June, quote unquote, Pride Month, where our culture is celebrating sin, putting sin on display, glorifying sin and wickedness. How do we pray about that? How do we pray about that? Well, David begins in verse 9, speaking of his enemies. He says, There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. David describes these foes of his who are seeking his destruction. He says, there's nothing reliable in what they say. There's nothing firm in what they're, what they're saying. I can't stand upon, I can't depend on anything that's coming out of their mouths. And he describes why he cannot depend on anything they're saying. It's because their inward part is destruction itself. David knows that his enemy's goal for him is the same as their father the devil's goal for him. The devil, a murderer from the beginning, their goal for him is his destruction. doesn't matter what is coming out of their mouth, how it may sound, how it may look on the surface. He knows there's wicked intention behind it. That is why he prayed what he did in verse 8. Lord, keep me, lead me in righteousness, because his enemies are seeking his destruction. He goes on to say, Their throat is an open grave. Like an open grave, all the rottenness and stench of sin just wafts out of their mouth continually. And like an open grave, these enemies stand ready to receive David's dead body once they've slain him. And not only that, but he says they flatter with their tongue. In other words, their enmity, their planning is not obvious. It's hidden underneath speech that is smooth like butter. That word flatter, it carries the idea of being smooth or slippery. And a perfect illustration of this happened during the the final week of the life of Christ. You'll remember the Pharisees and the Herodians, they teamed up to try to trap Jesus in something he said so that they could arrest him and kill him. In Mark chapter 12, verse 15, it says, They came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? You see how they start out? Oh, Lord, you are a great teacher. We know that you are from God. We know that you speak the truth. And then like a dagger, they slip in that question trying to trap him in what he says. That is what these guys are doing to David by their flattering tongues. These tongues that are like the smooth and slippery sides of a grave that if David's not careful, he might slip into. So he says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. And because that is who these enemies are, because his enemies are seeking his everlasting harm, That's the the attitude of the devil. The devil doesn't want to be in hell alone. He wants to drag every single believer with him down into the pit of hell. And he sends his henchmen to go and to try to trick us and trap us and drag us down into that. And so when David prays what he prays in verse 10, it's not some glib personal animosity he has to these these enemies of his. His own soul is at stake. He's asking, God, protect me, Lord. Lord. From these people who are seeking to destroy me. He says, Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. And the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. He calls on God to punish them. He says, By their own devices, let them fall. He's calling on God to hang them by the very snares that they're setting for David. You remember the the, uh, historical narrative of Esther and that mean evil man Haman and how he was so angry with uh, Esther's guardian Mordecai that he constructed a gallows that he intended to hang Mordecai on. But who ended up getting hung in those gallows? It was Haman. That's what David is praying for these foes of his. But I don't want you to miss this. David is not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's leaving judgment in the hands of God. And he's not seeking personal vengeance. He's not selfishly seeking justice. Because how does he end verse 10? He says, In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out. Why? For they are rebellious against you. He's concerned about the honor, the holiness, And the glory of God, not about himself. This type of prayer is hard for us to understand, but this type of prayer is consistent with a man who is after God's own heart, which David was. A man who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. A man who longs to see his nation filled with the glory and the holiness of God, instead of being filled with the perverse wickedness of men. David is desiring what God desires. He's conformed to the will and the desires of God in what he's praying. Now the the sticky question for us is how does that fit with what we read in the New Testament about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? Well, we need to understand there's no contradiction there. Remember Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Remember Psalm 4, verses 4 through 5, where David, the same David there, urges his enemies to repent and find salvation in God. It's the same David praying these two seemingly opposite kind of prayers, but they're not contradictory when you consider who God is because God is savior of sinners, right? But he is also judge of sinners at the same time. And so when we as believers become more and more conformed to God's character, willing what he wills, desiring what he desires, we will find ourselves simultaneously praying to God for on the one hand the salvation of our enemies, and on the other hand if they do not repent, Praying for God to remove that wickedness from among us. And we're praying that not because we're offended personally, but because they're rebelling against the God we love. And we love God even more than we love our enemies. But this kind of praying is something that should always be prayed humbly. Because remember how we approach God. It's not on the basis of our own merits. It's, according to verse 7, in the abundant, loving kindness of God for us. But when you come to verse 10, David is calling on God to reject his enemies, and the phrase is literally the same. It's in the abundance of their transgressions. They are being excluded because of the abundance of their transgressions. And if it were not for the loving kindness of God upon us, we would still be dead in the abundance of our transgressions, and we would be thrust out just like them. And so when we pray, it's not to be with a self-righteous attitude, but an acknowledgement that it is only by the mercy of God that we are on this side of things. So that is how we ought to pray about the enemies of God, if we're in conformity with the will of God. And then finally, if our prayers are being characterized By being conformed to God, how should we be praying for God's people? How should we be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Verse 11, David prays, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord, You surround him with favor as with a shield. In David's prayer for the people of God, we see the heart of God for his people. God wants, God demands that he alone be our God. God wants to be our highest joy and our greatest security. God does not want us seeking joy and contentment and security in anything or anyone besides himself. And so when David prays in conformity to God's own desires, he's praying that God's people would experience the fullest joy in God himself. Those who take refuge in God, who love the name of God, he's praying for their joy. And according to verse 12, this is perfectly in line with the will And the character of God, because this is what God does for His people. He blesses those whom He has declared righteous in His Son. He surrounds them with favor as with a large shield. And so, when we pray for one another, this is the kind of thing we ought to be praying for one another. It's fine to pray for one another's healing from ailments and diseases. It's fine to pray that someone would get a job or someone would find a spouse. It's fine to pray that your car will run well, that you'll get to where you're going safely or that you'll do well on that test or that that, uh, your dog wouldn't be so mean to your kids. But there is so much more to life in Christ than these temporal things that are all passing away. It's like what Paul said in Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not getting over this cold. It's not even getting through this uh, terrible situation at work or getting to someplace safely. No, the kingdom of God, Paul says, is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when we're praying for one another, let's make sure we're not only praying that some would have an easy time of it, in the here and now. But let's go beyond that. Let's pray for one another's eternal good in Christ. So how do we pray like Jesus? How do we pray like David? We humbly confide in God. We have a wholehearted confidence in God and we conform our wills and our desires to God's will and to God's desire. May the Lord help us to pray that way. Father, we ask your forgiveness for so many times we come to you uh, proudly and not humbly. We ask your forgiveness for how often we try to uh, look elsewhere to find our ultimate confidant instead of turning to you, Lord. Please forgive us when we, um, we don't consider your character, we don't consider your covenant. Lord, we don't uh, consider your faithfulness to do what you've promised, Father. And so we, we pray with an utter lack of faith, Father, an utter lack of confidence in you. And Lord, please forgive us. When, when, when we come to you in prayer, we're bringing our own agenda, our own desires, our own sinful ideas of how things should be instead of praying as the Lord Jesus prayed, your will be done. Lord, we want to pray like Christ. Help us, Father. Teach us how to pray like him. In Jesus' name, amen.